Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. Today I'm in conversation with Mark Nepo, a beloved poet, teacher, and storyteller. He's the best-selling author of The Book of Awakening and has written more than 20 books and 14 audiobooks. And he was voted one of the most hundred most spiritually influentially living people by Watkins Mind, Body and Soul. And it's a pleasure to have you here today to talk about your most recent book, More Together Than Alone. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you again. So I know you're a very busy person. You do speaking tours, workshops, events, traveling lots. And I wanted to start by asking, how do you find balance amidst your busy schedule? <laughs> well, I try, but like everyone else, I don't know how well I do it. But I think that, you know, this, this um, let me back up and talk about this uh, in, a, in a deeper way that I think affects everyone. And that is, in, you know, I have found that in my life, um, I try to move at the pace of what is real. And what, what do I mean by that? I mean that when I can have, however briefly, my mind, my heart, and my body move in concert, in congruence, like, like tumblers in a mystical lock, things open up and I'm completely present and the mystery and everything that's a glow, that's always glowing, starts to shimmer again because now I'm ready to see it and receive it. And of course I can't stay there because I'm human and so then, you know, something, a car goes by too close and my heart starts to race and I have adrenaline and now my heart's not moving at the pace of what is uh, real with, with my mind and my body or my mind starts worrying and it moves out of sync. So I think that this is a recurring practice for me of how to return to having, however briefly, my mind, my heart and my body move at the pace of what is real. So now... That's a practice whether I'm on the road or at home or wherever. And so now comes the thing about I'm blessed, um, I think, as you are, and a lot of people, I'm blessed to be doing what I love and what I really think I'm supposed to be doing. I'm 67. I feel great. And I also... You look you know, great, really, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, how, how precious everything is, of course. And so I feel like I've worked my whole life to do what I'm doing and to be with folks and to open up that heart space together. So I want to do it uh, as much as possible, but that's the trick, of course, what's too much. And this is something that, you know, William, one of William Blake's aphorisms is uh, excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Now that's been misinterpreted, I think, for generations as, oh good, we can get drunk. But, <laughs> but that's not what I think it means. I think it means that you know what's enough by trial and error. And so you try and try, oh, I slipped, that's too much. Now I go have to back up. 
And so I try to balance as best I can the travel. And sometimes it's too much and I have to back off. And sometimes I'm home too long and I need that community. And I realize, you know, I, I, I try to take January, February as my own time without travel. Mm-hmm. I stretched that one year to three months and it was too much because I need, I, I got out of balance by being still too much. Mm-hmm. So does that involve taking risks and making mistakes and uh, using all of what we do in, in learning and gaining insight into where we need to be right now? Absolutely. I think we can't help but make mistakes. And I don't even know if mistakes is a helpful way to frame it. I think when my father, who loved the sea and was a master woodworker, he built a sailboat that we spent a lot, I spent a lot of my youth on. And if we were in a storm or a fog, he would let me, even as a boy, steer by compass. Mm-hmm. And I, very early, if you know a compass that shows all the directions, even when you're on course, it never stays completely still. So even when you're on course, you got to watch it and go up a little to the left, up a little to the right. And as I later in life, that's become a real metaphor for me, for our individual practice. Because even when we're on course, it always has to be tended. It never stands still. And so we always have to course correct. So rather than mistakes, I think that we're always course correcting. Oh, my mind's going too fast. Oh, I'm a little too still. I need to be engaged. Oh, you know, I'm not listening. Oh, I need to stop and uh, be quiet. So I think that, that we're constantly doing that. And I, I see it as a, what I call an individual practice of return. Mm-hmm. Every spiritual practice is, is a practice of return. And it seems that even when we're able to figure out something that works, you know, our life circumstances change or an unexpected event happens. So there's this constant, as you mentioned, course correction that needs to happen that comes from, I suppose, attending to aligning all of our our mind, body, and spirit. Well, and this brings up, I think, you know, a relationship that all of us have to struggle with. And that's the difference between working for what we want and working with what we're given. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live in a, and it has been for a long time, but it's, I think, accentuated in the modern global age where, you know, we're almost obsessed with getting what we want. And I think that for me, uh, it, it's fine to have dreams and goals and work toward things, but I think that we hold them too tightly. I know I have when I was younger, and I think that they're really just kindling for an apprenticeship for how we show up when we're asked to work with what we're given. And that's where our greatness lies in what we give. When, and, and this leads to a story that actually is important in terms of the new book about community um, and the history of community and moments when we work well together. There's a parable about two monks who study long and hard and they're supposed to have an appointment with Buddha at the top of a mountain. And finally, wow, that would be exciting. <laughs> wouldn't it? And so the, the day comes, they've studied long and hard, and they start their climb. And halfway up the mountain, one of them breaks his leg. 
So they spend the night and the other tries to make him comfortable. And in the morning they wake up and the one who broke his leg isn't doing well. He has a fever and it's clear that he just can't be left there. So now what? And that's where the parable ends and it opens up this constant choice for all of us every day. When we have more people in an age or an era or a generation who will keep their appointment at the top of the mountain rather than care for their broken other, we have an era of cruelty. When we have more people who will realize and discover that tending to their broken other is the summit, we have an age of compassion. And it doesn't matter what your appointment is at the top of the mountain. It could be Buddha, it could be being wealthy, it could be having family security, it could be I wanna fall in love, you name, you, whatever you wanna put at the top of the mountain, that's fine. And there's nothing inherently wrong with whatever we aspire for. But when we hold that at all cost and, and not face our common humanity, we drift into an era of heartlessness. And so what, where are we today? What age will this be? I don't know that it's decided yet. And every one of us every day has to face and meet that choice. I thought I was going here, but look what's before me. Where was I really going? So when I hear you speak, I think of unconditional acceptance and surrender to the reality of our lives, which might not be what we might have thought our lives could be or would be. And I also think of, you know, how much the invitation for attending to each other, which I think is what you talk about in your book. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the things, and it doesn't mean that, that when we don't get what we want or we're, we're moved off course, that we, uh, that it's not frustrating or disappointing, but the unknown holds for us, uh, things we can't imagine. And it's not always catastrophic. The unknown holds wonder and mystery and completeness. And so often you know, when we're kind, it's not by accident that the word, that kindness shares the same root with kinship. Because one of the rewards for being kind is that we experience our kinship with all things. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're asked to be open to where life takes us. And how do we bring kinship and kindness into, you know, the political realm where there seems to be less kinship and kindness than will take us into a different age, you know? I think that seems to be so prevalent in some societies, certainly I think in the United States, is how to, to see people again as people apart from ideas and, the, and ideologies. Well, I think that this is very, very true and very hard. And so let me first say that I don't have any answers. I'm struggling with it as much as anybody, but, but let me speak to it. And I think that, that uh, let me speak to it today and let me speak to it, what I've learned from gathering all these stories throughout history. I think that, you know, um, one of the most important things is how do we 
listen and suspend judgment enough to truly hear each other. You know, one of the chapters in the book is, is called The Two Tribes. And that's a, where I try to imagine, just from what we're talking about, you know, I've been very distressed by where we are politically and where we are. You know, I'm, I'm of Jewish uh, heritage. Um, I have family members from two generations back that died in the Holocaust. Um, so how am I supposed to relate to the fact of seeing Nazis in the streets of America? What am I supposed to do with that? So that creates all kinds of tension and fear and anger and all kinds of things in me. And then as I try to reflect on this throughout history, not avoiding what I have to face individually, but deepening to what is the human, you know, we have gone through periods of history where we have pushed each other away and where we've welcomed each other. And as I reflected on that, that's what led to this chapter, the two tribes. So imagine in the beginning of in cave times, imagine the first two people coming upon each other. They didn't know there were other people. And all of a sudden, one's at the mouth of a cave and they come upon, they go, whoa, wait, wait a minute, who, who are you? And the one in the cave says, you're different, go away. And I think that was the beginning of the go away tribe. And based on fear, and depending on the level of fear as we move forward through history, if there's enough fear, then we say, you know, I can't trust you'll go away. I got to put you where I can watch you. So I'll put you in a camp or a ghetto or a refugee center or a detention center. And in the extreme malignancy of fear that, that sometimes has taken grip of humanity, we have genocides. We have, well, I can't even trust that you'll be where I put you, so I will make you go away. But now let's go back to that cave. And the one at the mouth of the cave says, oh, you're different, come teach me. And I think that was the beginning of the come teach me tribe. And that's based on the notion that we're more together than alone. You know, Plato had said, we are born whole, W-H-O-L-E, but we need each other to be complete. And all the spiritual traditions speak about this differently, but it's the same thing that, you know, in the Jewish tradition, God is considered an indwelling presence that doesn't manifest except through relationship. So it's like a seed that's not watered until we're doing what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. So, and throughout history, as that tribe and that curiosity and that trust and love has manifest. We've had periods of enlightenment and periods of compassion. Now, the, the catch to all of this is that huh, we belong to both tribes. Yes, we do. That's definitely true. And every day, like I'm talking to you now, and I clearly am committed to being part of the Come Teach Me tribe, but if I wake up with enough fear tomorrow, I could switch tribes. And then I need you to remind me. So how do we remind each other? I don't know, but I know that one thing, and this came from a student of mine actually, who found herself saying to a very, uh, a, a, a family member who's very polarized and entrenched in his beliefs, who wanted to have close contact with her. And she said, I don't know where it came from me, but I said to him, okay, only if we share our experiences and not our conclusions. I think that's profound. 
I think there's some medicine in there for all of us that instead of trying to resist being drawn into left or right, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, to say, to asking why you feel strongly about that. Tell me the story. Why do you feel strongly about that? Mm-hmm. Longfellow, the American poet in the 1800s said, if we listened to our enemies' sufferings, they would no longer be our enemies. Now, I know that, you know, I watch the news and I get frustrated and I, I got to put mute on and I don't want to hear <laughs> it's so maddening, but there is no they. We are they. We are they. And so the only, the only kind of condition that I have to put on all that is that, you know, I go around and convene circles and anyone, regardless of their viewpoint, is welcome into those circles except those intent on destroying the circle. And, you know, when you, how did this book come about? Was it part of a, a, a something that you felt inspired to write or something that you saw in terms of the work that you've been doing in workshops that you felt the book speaks to directly? Well, it really, it really came, I didn't realize it at first, but as I look back, <clears throat> it took 13 years to research and gather stories from all traditions from across history about moments when we've worked well together. That could be two people, it could be an entire 300 year civilization. Those are long moments. But I think what started this, and I'm and, and doing that because I believe that there's a lineage of care and interdependence that we're all a part of, but it's quieter. And so to lift up those stories so that we know that we're part of a, a larger lineage that is just as present, it doesn't make as much noise as fear and violence, but it's just as powerful and it's always present. And what, what led me to this was, you know, many years ago, in my 30 years ago, in my mid 30s, I had cancer and almost died. And, um, and I think back in those treatment rooms and waiting rooms, I experienced long before this book was awakened to me, I experienced moments of community. You know, the people who I met in those waiting rooms and in those treatment rooms were some of the people I was closest to on earth. And yet I don't even know their last names or where they lived or what they did for a living because all of a sudden we were together in real time, in authentic space, sitting next to someone going, hi, I'm afraid, how are you? Me too. And all of a sudden, you're there at that authentic level. So I think that that had stayed with me. And then I started to wonder years later, um, what, there have to be other moments of community. They have to be everywhere. And so I started listening for those stories and looking for those stories. And, you know, it, it's not surprising. It's a very, there's a very strong tradition throughout history. You know, one of the reasons that, that things uh, the, the, and there is a lot of division and polarization and fear and violence, but it's not clear how accurate it is compared to all the kindness and goodness that's going on all the time. Because when things break apart, they make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And things 
together, it, they're quieter. This is like spiritual physics. And so we have become in our modern age, I think, addicted to the noise of things falling apart. And so we don't need a good news station. We need a complete whole news station because things are always falling apart and always coming together. And it's the balance of the whole in which health resides. So how, how do we bring that back up? You know, an example of our being addicted is the weather. You know, when I grew up, uh, I turn on the TV and it would be weather report. Now you turn it on and it says storm center. Yes, true. Well, I thought last I knew storm was only one form of weather. So there's a good example. And so we need to be reporting and giving voice to all the, not ignoring the things that fall apart, but also giving voice to the things that are coming together. Do you think that the, uh, what we could call darkness or fear um, depend on our, you know, that um, I would say that the two coming together and division are, are like yin and yang and like night and day in the sense that they're, they're bound together and, and not apart or not opposites in the way that we might think in that way? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, when you think about, about it, when we just think about like, for instance, like light and dark, well, let's just talk about dark for a minute. I think that dark is not necessarily dark, but it's what's not yet visible. There's a yes. big difference. So like if I open a closet and it's very dark, but if I wait, it gets lighter. Well, it's not getting lighter. My eyes are getting accustomed to that setting and I'm seeing more. So we have to develop and support the courage to stay with what is frightening and unknown long enough till our eyes get accustomed and see what's there. Often fear makes us react and now we've called it dark. And then it's a short step, step to, to call dark evil. Mm -hmm. Bam, yes. now we have a judgment to it. So a part, of, um, a part of what your invitation is in the work that you do is for people to be present with whatever is there so that what can come to be visible comes. Yes, and to be, uh, so I, my, what I do when I uh, am blessed to be with folks is I try to open up a truthful and safe heart space that we enter together. And so, you know, we, we've, we've coupled in our modern age judgment with precision or discernment. And I think that's not really true. We can be discerning and very specific without judgment. You know, it doesn't. Some examples. Well, some examples. You know, you tell me that uh, that this interview was good. Well, for I feel good. Oh, that's great. I'm glad. I wanted it to be good. But then we get off off of our call, and I go, well, but I don't know what that means. So it's a very. Or you could tell me, you know, that didn't really. That really was a bad interview. And then I feel bad. And then I get off, and I go but I don't know really what that means. So good and bad, up and down, left and right, right and wrong, they're not helpful. 
helpful because they're not specific enough. Mm -hmm. so, and discerning, um, I've thought about this a lot too. Discerning may allow us to be very clear within ourselves what what works and what is helpful to us, but those same things may not be helpful or valid for another person. Yeah, and this is where this we go back to the book of the more together than alone. That we need, you know, there's an old, this is a great example that you use in the book, and that is Native American elder councils. They, yes. have, all, they have always met in circle, and they still do. Not just for equity, that there's no head to the circle, but be, so that everyone will have a direct view of the center. Now that's very profound and helpful because the assumption is no one view is enough. We need everybody's view to understand and grasp the center. So what you see from your side of the circle and what I see are not complete and they're not enough. So this renders argument useless. I, the older I get, I'm not interested in debate or argument or persuasion. We gather meaning, we don't choose it. It's your view and my view and the person next to us view and all of it. So I need not to play seesaw with meaning that, oh, in order for my meaning to be up, yours has to be down. We need to gather all our points of view because the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And you know, these stories that you've gathered for the book, how have they taken hold in your life and in how you teach and in the ways that you're now holding space for people to be authentic and truthful? Well, they're, they're, they're deepening how I, I am uh, uh, affirming and wanting people to share their stories. And it's shaped my lens. You know, I was just recently in London uh, for some publication events for the new book. And I think because I've spent all these years looking and gathering and trying to understand the lessons from these stories, I have a lens that now that I'm, I'm open and sensitive to seeing moments when we're more together than alone. So, you know, I was walking around in London and uh, here's an example that just stayed with me. So uh, buses over there, you know, the two double-decker buses. And, you know, bus. I was in the city. I was staying in a flat. And <clears throat> there was a bus stop right near where I was staying and waiting for the bus. And as the bus pulled away, there was a woman who had missed the bus. And, you know, and the bus was maybe 30, 40 feet away. And the driver saw her in his rearview mirror, and he stopped and waited for her. Mm -hmm. And I thought... This is a beautiful metaphor and a beautiful teaching. And there's a good example of how quiet things that come together are versus things that fall apart. If there were an accident on that street, everybody would have jumped out, looked out their windows, oh my God. But here was this quiet teacher. And I think of all the things I saw in London while I was there, I think this was the most profound teacher that kindness, it's like the monk on the mountain waiting. We are asked, probably more often than not, because every one of us will be late. Not because we're lazy, but because we work with what we're given. So community depends and kindness depends that we are going to have to wait for each other. And what's wrong with that? Where are we going? 
that he couldn't have waited. Where are we going that we can't stop? Hit the brakes and wait for the woman to catch up and get on the bus. Yes, because ultimately buses carry people. <laughs> That's the whole point, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that, that great love and great suffering remind us that there's nowhere to go. Wherever we stop on that mountain to care for each other, that's where we're going. Yes, I, I wanna go here and I wanna do this and I wanna do that, uh, fine. But that's not, all of it is kindling to ignite the fire in our heart. It sounds like your book is a real, will be a real inspiration and validation and affirmation that togetherness is what we humans are all about and to rekindle that sense of kinship. Well, I hope so. You know, I hope so. I'm eager to share it and to hear other and that it's, I hope it's a, uh, it's an invitation because these are, this is certainly not a definitive collection of stories, but an invitation, a threshold to tell and listen for more stories. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great thing that we can end with in terms of putting it out to people who may be listening to this, to encourage people to share stories that, that highlight you know, our togetherness, um, because that's definitely very nourishing to the heart when we get to hear those, those kinds of stories. You know, there's, I'll just leave you with this. There's a great mythic, uh, in, in Chinese mythology, there's a mythic bird called the Qian, C-H-I-E-N. Mm -hmm. And it's a bird that has one eye and one wing. And its sole destiny is to find another Qian so that it can see and fly beautifully um beautifully and poetically said thank you so much it's been a real pleasure to share space with you and be inspired by these stories of togetherness um thank you so much well thank you it's great to talk with you again to be a part of your good work <laughs>been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.